Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, this is a content warning. Uh, the interview that you're about to hear contains themes of suicide that some listeners may find confronting. It's not suitable for young listeners, and if you're listening whilst driving, I suggest that you catch up with the show later on 3CR Online or via podcast. I'd like to welcome Jacinta to the show. Hi, Jacinta. Good afternoon, Bill. Thank you for asking me on. No worries. Jacinta is a member of Allen and Family Groups, and she'll be sharing her journey of recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and talk about how Alan has helped her cope with the effects of someone else's drinking. So Jacinta, usually we start off the show talking about growing up and family and the things that influenced you. So what was your early family life like? My early family was a happy family. I had three brothers. I was the only daughter and we had quite a good time. My father loved teaching us swimming, running, and he loved spending time with us. And we had a holiday house at summer's. I had a carefree childhood, I would say. I didn't have to worry about money issues. And my parents always felt you need to look for the best in somebody. And if somebody was doing something inappropriate, well, we still had to overlook that and just look for the best in people. And my mother was really good at that. And my father too. A lot of people were welcomed into our house and they helped a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And it's only later that I found out how much they did help. So they weren't helping saying... I've done this and I've done that. It was just naturally how they did it. So I actually feel I had a very stable and a loving childhood. My husband does say I was the spoiled only daughter, which I did argue with him for many years, and now I've come to the conclusion he's right. (laughs) So I've actually (laughs) said to him, yes, I think you're correct there. I I think I was because my brothers are still nice to me and they will defer to me if there's a decision to be made uh, not about money, but about family, they will defer to me and give me the final say. So I, I was very fortunate. And even as my mother passed away 10 years before my dad, and my dad and I would go out for lunch nearly every Sunday. And a lot of people knew him. When he passed away, I said, all these restaurants are going to go out of business because he doesn't go anywhere. We had a lovely time. I was very fortunate. How old were the brothers? I've got two brothers older than me and one younger. And so you obviously had a good relationship with them. Yeah, we did a lot together. Well, we had holidays together. We went on holidays all the time. I went in an aeroplane when I was 10, which is really early. And we'd go to the beach. I was on Dad's back swimming when I was about two. This was what we did. We did a lot of fun family activities. And later on, we'd have barbecues. They were our family activities. So perhaps then some people drank more than others, uh, extra people that came in. But my family didn't seem to drink. And the aunts and uncles would come down and they were the same as my parents. They would sort of talk nicely 
about people and they'd talk about people, but it didn't feel like gossip. They would just give you some information. I went in a lot of swimming competitions, running competitions. We were never in sport with money. We had to earn what we had and we had to, you know, make do. But I felt sport was love. So our holidays weren't flashy, but they were lovely. They spent with family. So what about friendships and school for you? I went to a Catholic school growing up and then secondary, and I thought the nuns were wonderful. I made lots of good friends. The girl that was my bridesmaid, I'm still friends with, and I'm still friends with another girl I went to school with. I had coffee with her yesterday. And a lot of the males, because I had brothers, I'm friends with them. You know, they're still just friends. Yeah, so I was very fortunate. I don't think I had any enemies. I was looked after. As I said to somebody, if I lost my marbles when I was playing marbles at school, my big brother would go and get them back. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I had the bar set high, let's put it that way, that this is what I enjoy men's company because I had good brothers. I adored my grandfather. I've had good male men around me. I felt always felt secure and comfort with males. So that's why I have find it easy to have friendship with men. Yeah. So moving on to secondary, did, did anything change for you as you progressed through the school system? One big thing that changed for me was when my grandfather died. That was my mother's father. And she probably had a bit of a breakdown, but that era didn't complain. And that I wouldn't go to school and I'd kick the nuns and carry on. And finally they took me to a psychiatrist and they said I was taking on my mother's grief. She wasn't showing it, but I was the one performing. So she was just moving on as she could, but I was showing all the um, the symptoms. So that's an interesting little aspect when I look at that. All through school, it was fine. I was never a true academic. I enjoyed my sewing, I enjoyed my artwork, and I enjoyed English, which I'm still good at the spelling. My husband does the money, I do the spelling. I enjoyed it, but then my husband, future husband came on the scene when I was 16, and that really did disrupt my schooling because I had a system where I would study. Because I wasn't, I don't think I'm quick thinking, I needed to study. I needed to put the time in and he would interrupt and come and visit, and I'd say, don't come and visit. And he would even come to the school. And that was, I don't know how it is now, but that was a (laughs) no-no. So he was right in there early. He decided he wanted me and and I met him at the church. (laughs) So was was he drinking initially? No, no. And he didn't like drinkers, he said initially. But once we um, started going out, he'd... um, hook into his father's musket. His father used to buy musket by the barrel loads, those big, huge barrel loads from Rutherglen. Know them well. <laughs> he would bring that to a gathering so that he would share it with people, but technically he hadn't bought it as in paid for it. So he, he didn't drink, but the group had a little bit to drink. I didn't see them being, although one not, yes, a couple of times I suppose he did have too much. He did have too much, a couple of days, and I one time actually drove him home when I was 16, so I shouldn't have been driving, but he'd had too much. So I drove home and left him at my house. I don't know how he got home. I drove myself home virtually in his car. So you're a bit of a risk taker then? I just didn't feel anything would go wrong. You know, I just didn't see a danger. 
like I know not a lot of people look for dangers, but I almost seemed to be, well, I had big brothers that would protect me. <laughs> I had a dad that thought I was wonderful. Life was pretty good. And when we shifted, we shifted down to Hastings and that was, I just loved that. I don't know how it goes now, but it's like shifting down to paradise. It was so free. You could walk anywhere and nobody worried you much. There was only the odd bad chappy and he was, he stayed away from me. <laughs> so I was, I didn't know. I suppose I was, I didn't, yes, a risk taker. Yes. In some ways. Yep. So how old were you when you moved down to Hastings then? I was 10 and then I met my husband at 16. Right, okay. So how did you notice your future husband's drinking progressing? No, I didn't notice because his parents were extremely strict. So we only went out Friday night uh, and Saturday night and I could go to his house on Sunday. But I didn't see him drinking a lot. So I, I didn't notice before I got married. I didn't notice. And he worked a lot. He worked all the time. Right. Was he much older? No, he's uh, about nearly two years older. He went to work at 15. He worked on the family farm. So, yeah, he was working. Yes, then he got his licence and he bought his car from my father. (laughs) Uh, It's crazy, isn't it? Oh, it's crazy, yeah. So what led you to getting married so early? I became pregnant. Yes. So then I was married when I was three months pregnant and and our eldest son was born exactly to the day, six months later. So that was the huge decision. At the time, I didn't want to get married, but my husband did and his family really were quite for it and I really didn't want to get married. I wanted to see if I could adopt the baby out and if nobody adopted him, I could get him back. But in those days, you couldn't keep a child. Uh, with any help, assistance, yeah. Yeah, they were pretty rough times, weren't they? Yeah, and I look back now and think that I was very fortunate that my parents were so loving and understanding and didn't send me off. You know, so many girls were sent off and then years later they go looking for their children. And So I I look back now and see that I was still being looked after. His parents were very welcoming and loving to me. They were happy. I think they are happy to get him off their their, uh, shoulders because as soon as we married he became my responsibility as in why don't you make him do this and why do you let him do that and he of course as soon as he got married he found freedom because he'd had to stay home all the time well this time he could go out all the time I saw my husband's drinking start then yeah and and so what was your initial reaction to his drinking I didn't go to Al-Anon for his drinking I just accepted he's having too much to drink sometimes. And he wasn't, and he had a rule he wouldn't drink two days in a row. I mean, he'd get really drunk and pass out, but he didn't drink all the time. He would, I suppose, what do you call that, a binge drinker? Yeah. And he didn't go away drinking. He'd just drink and added something. And so I didn't go to Elanon for him. Oh, that's the notice, difference I noticed. Coming from a family that spoke nicely to and about each other, I went to a family that, gossiped about each other and pulled each other down, which I wasn't used to, and secrets. There was a lot of secrets and I couldn't understand it. We lived beside his parents on the farm. We lived beside them. So I would say to his father as I walked through the milking shed when he'd say, how's mum? I said, I think she's been drinking. He said, you shouldn't lie like that. Don't talk like that. So for two years I was told I was, making, you know, imagining things. 
I just wasn't used to this conflicting story. Anyhow, after two years, she'd, she was a binge drinker and she'd fall over and be passed out. So she became our issue for a long time. You know, that would be the conversation with my sister-in-law and I would bring up, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? Years of wasted time. And I finally got on to um, Marshall. He was really a helpful man to me uh, in AA. But that's not what got me to Eleanor either. Um, Kevin, my husband's father, he just couldn't work out why he couldn't control her drinking. He did all sorts. You know, he'd lock up the cabinet. He'd still have his musket, but he didn't want her to have any. And she never drank in public. She always drank out of the cupboard. We never saw her drinking. So it was a sad situation. And I realised now later that that let my husband down. He'd think she was going to be okay and friends would come home and she'd be passed out. So she was the drinker in his family. Yeah. It does take a toll on on children, that's for sure, looking back and and seeing that your parents not really acting like a parent. They're acting like a child a lot of the times and you become a bit of a parent yourself. Yes. And she was such a lovely person when she was sober. She seemed to have seasons. She did it mostly in the summer. So through the winter, she was excellent cook, excellent sorrow, excellent housekeeper, excellent nana if she wasn't drinking. <laughs> Did you have a problem leaving the kids with her? Well, after a while, I wouldn't unless my father-in-law was there because he'd say, please bring them over, you know, so if he was there, I would because she would never have harmed them. She just might have neglected them. Yeah, yeah. But the kids adapted. I realised later if she was passed out, one time I picked up my daughter and she was passed out, she's just playing there, you know, didn't, they just, kids are funny, they accept things. She still wanted to go back again. Yeah. So she didn't think it was too bad. So obviously they still acted like they loved it. Yeah. Did you only have one child? No, I had five. Five. All right. So did your problems increase with the number of children? Yes, because I was stuck home and I didn't have the money. I mean, I didn't go without because we were on a family farm, so I had plenty of food and milk. We milked cows. But I didn't have personal money and I was busy, you know, with the children and my in-laws because they were next door to us. I was expected to look after his mother, make sure she was okay, which is a pretty hard task when she kept sending me away. So... The problems got really worse straight away. Really, once I got married, I, the situa- the dynamics changed and my husband just became quite, um, well, he d- went off and did what he felt like any night of the week and I was home. So some nights I went, but most of the time I was home with the kids and we had more kids. Yes, it got worse. It got worse. And then we'd have people around drinking, which... I'd be drinking too. I didn't think of that. It's, it's weird how I know people say this about alcoholism. I didn't think of it as alcoholism. So lots of people would be around. Because we had a farm, we could have a lot of people there, a lot of room. They'd come and ride bikes and drive cars and do shooting and it all got a little bit crazy, but it's just what you get used to. It wasn't until my son, eldest son, he got married and he couldn't control his drinking. And he got out of control. That's what got me to Al-Anon. Right. Okay. Well, listen, we might take a quick break. 
you don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid, tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Jacinta and we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Allen on family groups. So Jacinta, you, you mentioned that um, when your eldest son got married and started drinking, that was really the start of, I guess, true alcoholism in your life as far as it impacted you. But looking back, can you sort of see the path your son took and some of the influences on him that pointed him towards becoming a drinker? Oh, yes, for sure. Right from the time when he was tiny, we had a lot of alcohol around the house. I was drinking. My husband was drinking. People would come. It was a party atmosphere a lot of the time because we were so young and a lot of people would come to our place from their home. You know, our place was the party place because kids didn't have their own homes then. You know, they didn't leave home. So we had a lot of people coming and drinking, the influence of drink was there. It was just constant. People were always drinking. You know, they were careless. They'd go drinking and then shooting. Yeah. It was careless behaviour and, and I was in, you know, I didn't, I didn't do anything about it. I can see that my eldest son, how he had a big responsibility because we were immature and I think it was hard on him. Oh, the other thing was he was the favourite of the in-laws. He looked good and he looked like their child, so he was the favourite and that's a big load for a child to carry, whereas the second son came along and he just skirted around and he got away with everything because he wasn't a favourite. But the fa- it's a big responsibility for the favourite. Um, he could do no wrong. Yes, he could do no wrong. And, if he, well, everybody loved him too. He had a lot of love around him. My parents loved him and his parents loved him. But I can see now the drinking, you know, I feel I contributed because there wasn't limits. There was no boundaries. I didn't set boundaries and say, this. we don't do this. There was no boundaries. And I was just happy if my husband was happy. Yeah. Was he sort of influenced by your in-laws? Oh, yes. My, my father-in-law, when I say they loved him, they loved him, but he was tough. My father-in-law was very tough. It, that, they used to have to help with the milking. You know, if it's tiny little things, they'd be carrying these big, all my kids, these big buckets, and he, they'd make them work. They didn't slouch around. There was, but they were, still loved them, but they still made them work hard. And he'd yell at them. And even when he's tiny, he said he remembered when he'd go over there, he'd go into the pantry and pinch the cheese and he would bellow at him. You know, he would, it wasn't just he would be told right off. Looking back, I can see a lot of the things that he was frightened of because he was yelled at a lot. He was dominated all his childhood, really. Yes. So I wanted him to get it a job away from the family home. I didn't want any more family working together because family can work together, but it's very difficult because you go to have a family gathering and they'd have had an argument. 
so you have the presents ready and everything ready and we're not going because they you know the men were arguing and the women were keeping secrets all gossiping about each other you know it behind the scenes things it was looking back it was just appalling it was no honest truth yeah well i remember in my life we'd, we'd have my cousins and my aunt and uncle over for afternoon tea or something and once they left all we would talk about was how unusual they were and different and yeah uh, yeah it was just it, it just is is insidious it makes your stomach sick i had to learn if i don't want the people there don't you know don't have them if they come yeah it's like that your entertainment my husband does that at the moment actually he has friends he asks them over and then as they go he gives them a good rundown and i think oh <laughs> so and my, and my son married young too he got a good apprenticeship and he my son was very excellent i'm not just saying that as a mother but he was very clever he's very intelligent but he did have a few outs where he got too drunk, you know, as a teenager before he got married, but he got married at 20. Yeah. So another young marriage, and then it wasn't long after that, that the responsibility. And he married a, a girl that drank quite a bit herself, like I did, but she's, I think she had more of a problem and she had come from a home that um, drinks. But she's, having said that, she was still a lovely mother and I still... I've apologised to her for being so nasty and blaming her for his drinking. So, yeah, that was a necessary thing to do. So after he was married, he did come back and live with us because she couldn't cope with him because of his drinking and he wasn't. He had a good job. They'd give him all sorts of hours, but he just couldn't maintain that work. He was also diagnosed then with bipolar. Right. And we would call in the um, cat team for the um, bipolar. Yep. So they'd come, but they said it's mostly alcoholism. So by then we had the word in our vocabulary, let's put it that way. So he was living with us as my youngest daughter was getting married, which was a tricky situation. We've got one marriage going ahead and one marriage falling apart. And they had two children whom they were impacted. Yeah. Yeah. So look, looking back, do you think you enabled him to drink? Oh, yes, yeah. It was acceptable for the kids to join you. I remember his 17th birthday party, we tried to have a nice party, but people, when we went out, they just put a whole lot of grog in. So I, I didn't like that, and that was too dangerous. So after that, I said, we're not having parties here because some walked home along the railway line and some walked, and I thought, oh, it would be awful to have someone leaving our property and have something terrible happening to them. So we didn't have any more. It's 21st we did have at our place, but that, I had that monitored. <laughs> By then I was onto it because <laughs> I just couldn't. Yeah, it was just terrible. I, I felt awful. I was trying to monitor it, but that was something I couldn't monitor. By then I realised we've got to monitor something here, but it's an impossible task. Yeah, you can't control an alcoholic. No, there's ways and means around it. Yeah, mm. always. <laughs> yeah. So how did it impact your life, having a son whose alcoholism meant that you had more responsibilities now? I was devastated for him. I was devastated. I was just devastated. And my, it was my husband's favourite favorite child. You shouldn't say that, but that's true. And the other kids were looking for my husband's attention, but he got it. And then my, he was getting all my attention too. This child was getting all my attention. 
you know, I had other children that needed me. Anyway, it, um, it was just hard. I was exhausted. I was exhausted trying to work out a solution till one night I sat down on the um, computer and just was typing up about alcoholism and help, help, help. And um, an Al-Anon thing came up and it was from America actually and they sent me the whole little pack. So that was my introduction from America for Al-Anon. But I still hadn't got to a meeting and my son got to an AA meeting. And they suggested it. So I used to then take, I went to an Al-Anon meeting in Frankston and I couldn't, I didn't understand most of it, what they said. But I know that's the night I came home and slept for the first time in it felt like three years, you know, and I, because we were fighting nonstop. I was saying to my husband, we can't give him money. And my husband would say, it's his money. He'd come home in a taxi and I'd go out and yell at the taxi driver. And the taxi driver would, take him away again he'd come back and take him away again he was at that stage he'd then gone on to some sort of a pension something he was getting some money somehow and I'd say that's actually not his money he should be helping his wife Kevin would say well give him his money and I said well it's really not for drinking so we set up a system then he and I my son Michael and I and I would take him shopping and I would handle the money this is control I know this is controlling (laughs) We've gone through all the, all the things you're not supposed to do. I did the controlling, but he was so clever. He'd take stuff back. Like I would buy stuff. <laughs> when you think of it, it's smarter, a hell of a lot smarter than me. But in the video, he told me. So we had this other system and he handed me all his money and then I sorted his money out. Once he got to AA and he knew that he couldn't be responsible, he knew how clever he was. He knew he could... He could get money somehow from anywhere. So I handled his money. And in this time, the marriages blew up and he shifted back to his house. So I would take him shopping and he didn't handle any money at all for six months or 12 months of his, of his sobriety. And I would take him to meetings. And while he went to a meeting, I would go to an Al-Anon meeting. And that was wonderful because I, um, there was a solution and it taught me how to set boundaries. And that the boundaries was good for him and I. Both he and I enjoyed boundaries because he knew he couldn't step past that boundary. And it also helped me to apologise, you know, to see things in a different light because even though he was the one I went to Al-Anon for, I still had issues with my husband even though it wasn't through alcoholism, drinking too much, but he'd still drink a bit. But that wasn't the issue with me. It was... um, just seeing the boundaries there too and learning to apologise. Remember the first time I apologised to him, he nearly fell over. <laughs> it was just, I, mean, I can still see he was walking along and I said, look, you know, this is not all your fault. I'm to blame too. And he goes, <laughs> and it just was. So these little gems that you get in Al-Anon, they're brilliant. You know, I mean, they just, I, there was no way I was ever going to apologise to him because I did blame him for being the worst and this and that. So it was just a little gem that I picked up is to take your part of, you know, you're part of it too. Yeah, it takes two to tango, that's right. It takes two, it takes two, yeah. Anyway, my, my son was, he, he would notice if I was getting grumpy and he'd say to me, I think you better go to a meeting, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> 
but it was really good. We got we developed a great relationship. So even though him and his father really were bonded, they were like twins, probably because he was so young when Michael was born. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they were close to us in age. They could have been brothers, even though Kevin was the boss. Um, we had a good relationship and everybody was actually quite happy. They could see the dynamics had changed and their marriage tried to get back together, but it couldn't. I mean, it just didn't work. But we kept a good relationship happening. And I remember going to Al-Anon for a while and after about four or five years, people realised I had more than one child. So that just shows you how focused I had become on one. And I remember one son standing at the door saying, we've all got problems. It's like, no, you haven't. No, you're all right. So it's amazing how the one child seems to pull all the the goodness and the draining and the, anyhow, they all, they all still loved him and got in, but he, he didn't make it. After, after eight years, he went back. So that was pretty hard. And once he went back drinking, we knew it would be the end. Oh. He and I talked about it. I said, well, he said, I won't be able to come out of this again. Anyhow, we kept up, a, I still kept a relationship. I still went walking with him every week. And he still kept working. He'd work on a taxi in the night on the weekend and he'd pace himself so that he could drink Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. He had his system worked out. Um, so he was sober for eight years and then he went back, which was wonderful timing. And then, then he... Um, just, I just got a call to say he didn't make it. That's what he'd always said he was going to do. He said he was going to do that. He was going to, um, he was going to have enough drink to drink and not come back because he said he can't do it anymore. We never say it, but he, that's what he wanted. And um, I, was just, I was just grateful that I'd had those years of understanding and not not, not thinking that it was just bad. Um, and it was just an illness. You know, it was just an illness and and that he, he you know, he loved us, but he couldn't do anything. And he and his daughter, his daughter shifted in with us, his my granddaughter. So she lived with us for eight months because she couldn't live with the the new fellow her her mum got. So we used to go also and have breakfast with, with Michael and the very last breakfast we had, he was happy and he was laughing and, and that's how I, I remember him. He said we had a good relationship even though he was sick. You know, we were having we were having fun. Each week we'd have a walk, he'd take his dogs and we'd have a walk and then we'd have a coffee and he'd, insist, he'd want to buy breakfast. And the funny, funny, it's always funny, I, upsides but he'd, he'd insist on buying his daughter something breakfast and then when he got home he'd rang me and he said no I haven't got any money can you lend me money <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just said which the rule was I just said um you'll get you'll earn some more money I didn't give him money so I, I had set these boundaries you know and, and along the way he'd wanted to shift back in here when I had his daughter and I said, no, I said, no, you can't do that. You know, I had, I knew how to set, Alanon taught me how to set boundaries. It actually gave me self-confidence too, to do things that I, um, 
wasn't able to do because it was very dominating here. My husband was a very dominating man as his father had been a dominating man and you weren't to do things unless they approved of it and I wasn't to work away from the house because why would you fatten anyone else is their expression. So, uh, <laughs> so that <laughs> so meant I was trapped really. I mean, I did something but I was trapped. Unless I had a reason to go out, I wasn't to go out. Yeah. And the ironic thing was my husband was car crazy, so we had a lot of good cars sitting in the shed that I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, life, life's crazy how it works. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's all about control, yeah. Oh, it's full control. So I learned, I went, I got a job. Once I went to Al-Anon, I got a job. Uh, my husband said, you're too old, but and I couldn't work it out how to do it on the a computer so I just went to the people I said look this is the job I know I can do and I could I did and I got it so it was good I enjoyed that and I got the confidence to go to conferences fortunately I was going to a meeting one night and the car in front of me up the top of the road was leaving and as we got to the meeting we were going to the same meeting so after that we had five really wonderful beautiful years of um going to meetings together because by this stage my son was he had his license back and he was able to do what he was doing so I went to meetings with her and we formed she was my sponsor and she's we have formed a great friendship and so we went through the steps and she helped me and the first conference I went to she said oh, the conference is up in Coffs Harbour she said do you want to come and I said well I want to come but I don't and she said I'll just book it so she just booked it so I was actually out the door before my husband knew I was going, so to speak. <laughs> it was great. It was great. So I learned confidence and I learned to laugh again. I think one of the things with alcoholism is there's just no fun in your household. There's tension and there's gossip and there's manipulation, lies, everything, but there's no fun, not genuine fun. No. Not, uh, so, yeah, I learned to do things. I've done other things. You know, I've learned a lot. I felt freer. Yeah. The tri- trick is sometimes that it's because you're pushing boundaries, it's work, and sometimes you think, I just can't be bothered doing that. So that's when I know I've really got to just do it again and not give up and say, oh, yeah, that's true, it's too hard, a bit like exercise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, listen, we'll take another quick break. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And today I'm talking with Jacinta about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon family groups. So Jacinta, we're, we're talking about 
the benefits of being in Al-Anon. So I really want to take you back to, I guess, when you first went to Al-Anon and I think you said that you didn't really understand it at the start, but when did it start to make sense to you and what were the sort of things that had helped you clarify? After I felt fine that night, people were just talking about different things, just listening to everybody, how they'd overcome their situations, which at that stage I didn't think there was any, I didn't feel like there was any overcoming. And people were laughing. And one lady gave me an enormous big hug. I think that was just exactly what I needed on about the third time there. And later on in meetings, one lady came up to me and she said I'd given her a hug that brought her back. So that's interesting. The hug for some people is that's just what I needed, that it felt like just an all-encompassing hug, I understand you. And that was just beautiful. But they didn't straight up. They didn't. They waited till I'd been a couple of meetings. Um, I learned the positiveness. People were positive, and they were doing interesting things. And they still had trouble in their life, but it wasn't dominating their life. And I did learn uh, skills to detach. And I learned, I learned that you've got to be con- in control of your own money. Now that was a huge one for me because my husband was in control of the money. So. I started to become in control of it and that was I can't even explain how that happened. This is just a higher power job. Uh, it really is a higher power job and it just keeps, because that was my huge concern was how am I going to cope? But things started to fall into place. Well, And then I got a job, which it wasn't a lot of money, but it was money. <laughs> so things started to improve and well, now I, I am in my own business and I'm making money, so it's um, it was changing my attitude. I just couldn't see a way out of it, and then people gave me a way out. As I say, um, my friends had come to the first um, conference, and, I, and when I went, I could just see comp- confident people that had bigger troubles than me. They'd had people that had been in jail and been, you know, killed, and I, I just thought, oh, driven and um, hit someone, you know, killed someone drink driving. And I just thought we're in a, I'm in a lot better position. I started to see gratitude for the good things in my life, which had become very bleak. You know, I had, couldn't see it. So I, I started to, there was a shining light again. There was light at the end of the tunnel and the people in Al-Anon, they're just wonderful. They're still like family. And so I see them on the Zoom meetings all over the place and it's, it's just, it's beautiful. I love to see them and I love to hear them. But even if I can't hear them, I still like to just see them. It's lovely. So I was, I was going to ask, how did you take the, the disease concept of alcoholism that the person wasn't drinking to hurt you necessarily, but they were, they had a bigger problem. They had an illness. Oh, yeah. Well, that was in Al-Anon they did say that and they'd have speakers come from AA and just to hear their story was you know, that was like a light bulb going on in my head. They're not doing it to annoy anybody. Or they're, they're just in pain. They're in a lot of pain because they can't control their drinking, which must be awful. That was probably the huge thing. Once I could understand it and read more about it, and I've got the daily readers, so I could read every day something, which would often be just what I needed for that day to get me through and realise this is what, well, so many people are going through addiction and there but for the grace of God go I, which it wasn't because I said I'd, no, somebody said nobody puts their hand up at school and says I want to grow up and be an alcoholic. That's Nobody says that. 
Not at any point. Not at any point. No. And no. even those that are drinking, because I'm around drinkers a bit still, but they don't, not the problem for me anyway. They're not my problem, perhaps. You know, even being around drinkers, I can see it's, it's yeah, it's hard. It's hard for them. And they're just doing the best they can. Yeah. Yeah. I have more empathy. I have I have love for them. That's the word. Yeah. Yeah. Respect their right to be sick. Yeah. Yes, yes. And I think even this Elanon has helped me with my husband. You know, I've been able his my husband's got advanced prostate cancer, so he's not well. And I've been able to come full circle and forgive him and just see the bigger picture. Because I I got very cross with him for a lot of things, you know, mismanaging money, being awful to the children, hitting them, you know, anything. Yeah, I, I was very cross and now I can have empathy and forgiveness and even for the way he treated me I can have forgiveness and he's actually a lot different person now so we have a better relationship and I have yeah we have a better relationship and I think it's because I've learned to say my truth without being mean just say it was once before I was too scared to say anything I was too frightened I was a mouse and now I can say it not in a bad mood or throw it at him so I you can say it and, and say it, yeah. Say what I mean without being mean. Is that the yes? Yeah, I think that's the same. Yeah. Yes. And it's and the kids are all my influence had a huge impact on the children when Michael died. And they they took their strength from me, I could see. They took their strength from me. That was good for them. And we weren't all in a mess, you know, whereas they were in a mess and I wasn't in a mess because I had my Al-Anon friends and they came and they helped and, and they could see that it was just a strong feeling which helped everything carry through okay. So now, yeah, but there's, pro- there's still um, the illness doesn't, as I said to my husband, I need to keep going to Al-Anon. He wanted me to stop once he died and I said, but the illness hasn't died. You know, the, the illness is still in the family. Actually, right back at the beginning when I first went to Al-Anon, my husband thought I could go one night and get the solution. <laughs> now I laugh now. 19 years later, <laughs> when I came up. <laughs> Did you try and influence your family to go to Al-Anon and Alateen? Oh, I sure have. I want my daughter, to, I would like my daughter to go, but uh, and I keep suggesting it. And I took my two grandchildren, they're, they're his children, but um, they didn't. They didn't um, follow through. But I just, I just still do it anyway. And now it's not a secret. You know, once it have to be a secret that that's where I was going. Now that's just what I'm doing. And today, when I, my husband's gone out for me to do this Zoom because I wouldn't be comfortable with him in the background. But this time, I, he has gone out. So that's, yeah, I should be, but I'm not. Wouldn't be comfortable. One thing I found going to meeting, people would often say to me, you know, you should bring your sisters and your mother. And I thought, well, it's not easy to share and share at a meeting if you've got a very close relative there because of the critical nature and the fact that even though we have good principles as a family, we still use things against each other and, you know, you, you, can't, you can't resolve 20 or 30 years of problems just through a meeting. <laughs> And we're human. My daughter-in-law did go to meetings and we very we have a really good relationship now, but I used to let her go to one meeting 
and I would go to the other. I didn't go to the same meetings, but it did teach me how to apologise to her, which was that that's huge. <laughs> it is huge. And I was grateful to her because when they separated, she bought a house near us. You know, she didn't say, you're so awful. I'm shifting away and changing my name and she's let the children come. So I'm actually going for a walk with my granddaughter tomorrow morning. So that's attributed to her because she didn't isolate us. So I'm very grateful for a lot of things. Yeah. And that's it's Al-Anon. It is Al-Anon. It just works in many, many different facets in very many levels. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that when your son died, your other children sort of took, took the lead from you. So how much did it impact their lives, losing a brother? Oh, they were devastated. Uh, my youngest son, I had three sons and two girls. My youngest son, he, it was his best mate virtually. The second son, he was always very good to him. They got on They were, got on well. One of my daughters, when I rang to say he died, she just carried on with the party she was going to with the children because she said there's been he's taken up so much of our time. And, you know, often I'd say he's not well and I often turned up expecting him not to be well at the when I opened the door. I didn't know if he'd be gone many times. So when it finally happened, I think people, some we thought this was happening 10, 20 times ago. So, but they all took, did take my lead and I did this. They were writing the eulogy and I thought, who's going to do this eulogy? I've got a lot of loudmouth people, but I don't think any of you are going to. <laughs> so just with the grace of God there, I did. I did the eulogy. They'd written it down and I did it and I just said what I felt like. And they did enjoy that. They liked that. So they were happy because they couldn't do it, you know, Nobody could do the, I knew they couldn't, but they are all big talkers, but they couldn't then. (laughs) Yeah. Well, having been through the death of a parent myself and my dad, at my father's eulogy, I couldn't mention the fact that he drank because my mother was still alive and she wouldn't let it say that. So were you you able to mention his drinking or not? Look, that's one of my regrets is that it wasn't written on the, thing because they'd written it but I took all his AA badges he had AA badges for how many you know and they have how many years or months of sobriety I had them all there and had all his AA stuff some of his AA people came but he was in a biking thing and all the bikers came and gave him a nice biking farewell to the you know Uh, but I that's my one regret because I've been to a funeral with my, one of my friends and she said her husband had the struggle with alcoholism, but he was a nice man. So that, I didn't say it, but I wish I had it. That's a regret. If I had life again, I would say that he really did the, um, he fought the good fight. Yeah. He really did. He fought the good fight. Yeah, I, I think it's a regret of mine as well that, that not being able to talk about, you know, the, the biggest thing in your family is hard, yeah. Yeah, yes. And I was probably aware of his children and his, you know, well, they all would have known, though. They all knew. Everybody knew. Yeah, they all knew, yeah. (laughs) It's not a secret. It wasn't a secret. But, you know, they didn't want, we had had to wait for the coroner's report, which came to me. And my father died two months later. So my father's coroner's report came first. But that's what they said it was on the... um, coroner's report but none of them wanted to hear that no (laughs) 
anyway, that, that's good for a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah, my dad didn't die of alcoholism. He died of emphysema, yeah. <laughs> but, then, well, we still, we, we're, nobody's perfect, are they? <laughs> so no, we still no, have that's our right. Phobos. Yeah. We still have our phobos. <laughs> so usually at the end we sort of talk about, you know, the sort of thing you you say to people who didn't know much about Alan, who you thought it would would help. So you know, do you do you try and share your story with others uh, outside of Alan? Yes, I do. I don't. I say I say where I go, and I say why I go, and yeah, I do all the time. Um, till people are ready, though, they don't hear you. Like I didn't hear people earlier. Till you're ready, it seems like you can't hear it. And then once you're ready, it seems to click in. Yeah, well, that, that's part of the reason why we do the show is just to try and let people know that that alcoholism exists. Uh, it affects a lot of people around the alcoholic and often, you know, as badly as the alcoholic. Oh, yeah. But unless people know that what alcoholism is and how it works, how it affects families, and the fact that there's places like Alan Family Groups and Alcoholics Anonymous around that can help, People live in terrible situations without thinking there's a solution. If anybody would like to find out more about Alan and Family Groups, uh, you can phone them on 1300 252 666 or you can go online at alanon.org.au for more information about meetings or phone contacts throughout Australia. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Jacinta for joining me and sharing her Alan and Family Groups recovery experience with us. Thank you, Jacinta. Thank you, Bill. Thanks. It was good. Good chatting with you. Yes, a pleasure. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from gambling addiction and we'll be joined by a member of Gamblers Anonymous. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. If this interview has raised issues for you and you need help, then you can call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. Assistance. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11 a.m. with me, Gavin Moore giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. Oh, my God.